0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. The podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell. Featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. Buenos dias, buongiorno, guten tag. So, we've made it all the way to episode 87 and it's taken us a few years to get here, but hey, some of us have lives to lead, families to take care of, jobs to work at, and social lives to enjoy, and all the rest of it. I recorded this episode with COVID, and that's relevant to the conversation today. Fortunately, I'm fully vaccinated, and therefore the consequences have not been too severe. Fatigue, a cough, and one day of high temperature. The fatigue persists, and today I'll be getting another swab to find out whether I'm finally negative or not, because it's been two damn weeks. Two weeks! Yes, that's too long, being cooped up back in the house. Today we're interviewing a guest about an interesting phenomenon called conspirituality. Not only is conspirituality a neologism, it's also a portmanteau which is a phrase I didn't know previously. It actually means a blend of words. Did you know, for example, that smog is one? As is motel. Excuse my ignorance, but I had no idea. It's funny what you don't learn and what you do learn going through the education system, but I guess that word never popped up as important. Conspirituality is, though, for today's conversation, and I'll tell you a bit about my guest in just a moment. For now, I thought it might be useful just to spend a few words on conspirituality itself. Now, I have a personal connection to this world because you might say I was a practitioner of conspirituality in my early twenties, back in the nineties. I didn't realise that at the time, but I was, and reading about it, well, it kind of describes me too. Apart from the far-right politics, that never appealed, although apparently it does rather these days anyway a bit of context the term was coined back in 2011 and it's actually uh, part of a, a sociology paper called the emergence of con spirituality and our guest today is a sociologist so i thought that was worth mentioning but what is it well according to them and i imagine that the definition has enlarged a little since then it's a politico-spiritual philosophy wow although Guess what, most practitioners of it, or most people practicing it unwittingly, would probably avoid the word political at all costs. Anyway, what is it? Well, it's rooted in the new age, and the new age that persists to today. It holds to the idea that there is a secret group somewhere, secretly controlling secrets, and secretly, mm, there's too many secrets, but somehow Manipulating and controlling everything behind the scenes That's the conspiracy bit The spirituality bit, well, that's about humanity Going through some kind of major shift in consciousness If you like, a paradigm shift of consciousness I'm sure that will sound familiar to some of you too I can't be the only person who fell into that kind of nonsense back in the 90s The odd thing about this kind of movement is that it believes that the best way to deal with politics and the messiness of wider society is by waking up. Not in the Buddhist sense of the term, although I'm sure they chucked that in the mix somewhere, but through some kind of new paradigm shift and through people waking up to the true nature of things God, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? There will be a collective awakening and everybody, I guess, afterwards will, well, go around Picking flowers, smiling, and having lots of sex or something like that. Of course, this movement was influenced by the kinds of failings of New Age more broadly. Narcissism, delusion, ignorance, and disassociation from reality. Yes, I'm afraid that's a big feature of the New Age. So, of course, conspirituality has a core narrative that, well, basically positions its practitioners as being more enlightened and more awake and more wise and knowledgeable than mainstream society, the sheep, the sheeples. And it's interesting because, well, with any good narcissist, the sense of superiority has to be coupled with some sense of persecution. Yes, and of course those engaged in conspiracies plus spirituality are great believers that they hold to the truth, the real truth, the big secret truth that you don't know. It's kind of amusing, isn't it? And it's kind of sad. And it might even make you angry. I mean, this kind of stuff could provoke a whole range of emotions. Anyway, another feature, if you don't know, is Western esotericism, which apparently is inherently suspicious. So, hey, stop putting all those pieces together and you'll get a sense of where we're at right now. Conspirituality is obviously a major feature of COVID-19 conspiracy theories, and several people of late have been pointing out in the press that there are clear links between yoga practitioners who really take this spiritual side of things seriously and far-right conspiracy theories including QAnon. And anyone following the Imperfect Buddha Facebook page may have noticed a while back i posted about two ex-girlfriends of mine being thoroughly absorbed into this stuff one of them even recommended i go and have a look at david ike again what the hell it's 2022 ladies come on move on anyway our guest today the man who's going to be helping us unpack all of this a little bit and have an intelligent discussion about it is steph opers he's a professor of media culture at the Institute for Media Studies at the University of KU Leuven, which is in the Netherlands. You're going to hear him referring to it as K-11 throughout the conversation, which sounds like an academic year in in American high school, but that's not what he's referring to. So he's a cultural sociologist, and he studies the role of cultural meaning, which is a big topic of our conversation. He's published all over the place and is one of those folks that has a wide range of interests and in his job he manages to stimulate and satisfy his curiosity in many of them. Topics such as religion, modern myth, conspiracy theories and the way cultures relate to the media. He was put forward as a good option as a candidate to discuss the phenomenon of Cohn's spirituality and I can confirm he certainly was a really nice chap great conversation we do talk about covid and we talk about buddhism too and we look obviously at conspiracies spirituality and the new age by the way you're welcome Uh, who is Steph Alpers and what do we need to know about him
0: That's a a hard question to begin with. I studied at the University of Amsterdam uh, sociology. And I think uh, most relevant here is that I've always been very interested in the question, the very simple question, how do people actually make meaning in everyday life? So that is a very existential question, but also uh, ultimately a question I think that informs most of our research. And also as a cultural sociologist, uh, I have been particularly interested in this question uh, since being educated in the 1990s. I saw actually that most of the the grand narratives and the ideologies and religion and all these grand worldviews that used to give meaning to people in everyday life almost routinely were sort of eroding and lost their plausibility. So that made the question, how do people make meaning in their lives, for me, more interesting. And obviously, this also collided uh, with my personal interest in how do I do this for myself? Well,
1: that's, uh, that's an unexpected and very interesting answer. And I think the theme of making meaning is, is also central to the project uh, that we're engaged in with this podcast and the, the related writings. So that's, that's really interesting. So look. Your research areas are obviously related to to meaning making, but you've also mentioned your own personal interests. So perhaps we can stay with that a little bit longer. Apart from work and perhaps family, uh, how is it that you find meaning in your life, especially in relation to or this big picture view that you've just laid out, which I think is is useful for us here, mm. of how many of the grand narratives have fallen apart? So, mm. what's been your response to that? Is it just to explore? the kind of strategies that people in the general population are employing to fill that gap? Or are you involved in some kind of meaning-making project yourself?
0: Personally, I'm I'm, I'm actually not involved in a big, large project of meaning-making. And, you know, in general, I think I have difficulties in believing anything. So <laughs> if I should describe my stance, which is, half personally and half, you could say, uh, professionally, I generally take an ironic stance in the sense that I'm very, very much intrigued, seriously engaged with what is going on in the world and the worldviews that people hold. But at the same time, it is very difficult for me to totally lose myself in one particular view. And Again, I think in my profession, that is really helpful because that's a, a form of uh, a sort of ironical agnostic stance that makes it easier for me to focus on what other people believe and how they make meaning in their everyday life. And I think most of my research is very much about that, whether we're talking about uh, new age or people involved in spirituality, or people believing all kinds of conspiracy theories. My position is very open. I'm very interested in what they say, how they make meaning in their own lives. So I don't know if this helps. I don't know if this explains, but if I would sort of characterize my my, my personal view, I'm not investing in big, large uh, worldviews. I basically derive meaning from looking at the world and being engaged with the worldviews of other people, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it certainly does. But I'm not just hearing irony. I'm hearing a certain amount of curiosity as well, which informs this way of of, of looking Definitely. and engaging. Yeah, good. Good, good. And I, I'm going to imagine as well, you need quite a bit of a sense of humor to study this kind of material too, right? <laughs>
0: that's another way of putting it. I mean, but that, it's true. I mean, that's perhaps also, it's interesting that you're saying that because... It's it's also, I mean, I'm fascinated by the uh, the eccentric. Uh, and also I'm fascinated by things that seem at first sight very bizarre and absurd. The personal side in me is also laughing about these things, not in a you know totally you know dis- discarding it or or, or or dismissing it, but laughing about the fact that the world is just a totally crazy place, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where people have all kinds of ideas about how reality works, that that is something to laugh about as well. But at the other end, I take that very serious because ultimately people can do nothing else than imagine reality as it is. Right. So I'm interested also seriously. Uh, in the imaginations that people have about the world around us. And these can be spiritual imaginations about nature, uh, or they can be also more political imaginations that are more related, for instance, to conspiracy theories. But I've also delved in all kinds of projects uh, in Silicon Valley uh, where ICT pioneers and programmers talk about technology and imagine what it is and what it should be, right? And I think that is very much the stance of a cultural sociologist. Reality is not something that you can contact. You study not reality as it is, but you basically study the way people imagine reality. And that is culture.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So for non-Europeans, do you think your location in Europe informs your reasons for being interested in the topics of the New Age spirituality and conspiracy theories. And by that, I mean, does being located in Europe have uh, a special role in informing what you think about and the work you do?
0: I actually think that is uh, that is uh, at least implicitly uh, very important. Well, for a long time in, in sociology, of course, the sort of idea that secularization, the decline of traditional religion, that is Christianity, it was long assumed that it is a sort of universal process, right? and also an inevitable process. Once science and technology becomes powerful and societally dominant, the religious worldview will be in decline. At the same time, I think, you know, when I started studying religion and spirituality, it became uh, more clear uh, in academia that secularization is actually quite a local phenomenon, whereas In the world outside of Northwestern Europe, religion is actually, whether we're talking about Christianity or evangelicalism, or whether we're talking about uh, Buddhism or or Hinduism, is still a very, very major thing, and in many ways, uh, very acute and growing. And the United States, on another level, is also deeply religious in many ways. So in that sense, uh, Northwestern Europe, where I'm actually part of, and particularly the Netherlands, is a particular uh, location, where, for instance, in the Netherlands, you see, we are one of the most secular countries in the world. If you look at the, the decline of church visits since the 1960s, nowadays, it's only, say, 15 to 20% of the people that consider themselves religious in a very traditional sense of the word. So this puzzle of what people do when they leave the churches, the Christian churches, and if and how they relate to something that we call the sacred or, or the spiritual or the divine or uh, the metaphysical has become a very acute thing, particularly in Northwestern Europe and the Netherlands. So I think to a certain extent, my, the, the, this is what intrigued me all along. What do people, when they leave the churches, will they become atheists? Or is there another third option, you could say, in addition to traditional religion and atheism? And I chose to explore this. And I think the place to do that particularly is Northwestern Europe. I've mentioned
1: already that, you know, you work in these different fields, but it's sometimes useful just to make sure we're we're working with the same definitions, more or less. Mm-hmm. So the New Age, uh, spirituality, and then conspiracy theories. So... I grew up in the 90s in the UK, and Mm -hmm. the New Age seemed to be at its peak in that period, at least there. And I grew up with a hippie mum as well, which means I was literally, you know, surrounded by and embedded in Mm -hmm. the sort of high New Age culture of the 90s. Spirituality as well, of course, is a term that can mean many things to many people. And conspiracy theories, even though it seems quite obvious sometimes what we're talking about, one man's conspiracy maybe another man's truth or realisation. So mm-hmm. can we just define the terms briefly? Mm-hmm. Let's start off with new age. How would you define the new age to somebody who doesn't really know much about it?
0: Huh. Uh, well, if I had to keep it short, I would say that uh, the new age uh, is uh, or was uh, a multi-faced phenomenon where people, on the one hand, pick and choose from all kinds of uh, religious traditions. They may be uh, theosophy or esotericism or Eastern ideas derived from Buddhism or Hinduism. That's on one level what New Age is about. It's bricolage. It's picking and choosing on an individual level. And there's a particular consumer attitude involved there. On a more substantial level, I would say that uh, the ideas in general, always hark back to the central and core assumption that nature, and particularly human nature, is ultimately sacred. And that, in addition, and strongly related to that, uh, society and all its institutions, uh, that is, modern science, that is, modern media, that is, uh, modern politics are potentially corrupting these sacred things like nature and human nature. Uh, So that is the scheme, I think, or the the basic assumption uh, that is underlying all this variety of ideas.
1: That's a really nice way of of defining it. And I think in that definition as well, you you capture what are the, the the aspects of the new age which resist and continue to to thrive today and perhaps mutate into mm-hmm. the third of these topics. But uh, the next one is spirituality, and I know it's difficult to ask you just to kind of define that because it's such a massive term, even more so yeah. than the new age. But um, in the context of the conversation we're having today, what would be again your kind of go-to broad definition of spirituality? Especially in relationship to contem- uh, you know our contemporary moment,
0: yeah. Well, I would st- still stick generally to this this idea. I mean, obviously there mm. is also a lot of quantitative research demonstrating that uh, indeed there is a third position that people uh, who are not traditionally religious or a- atheists are very much open to all kinds of spiritual things. You know, there's the whole idea of believing without belonging, uh, not belonging to a particular church or chapel or a religious uh, tradition, but at the same time, believing in something. I mean, that is the most general and perhaps overly vague definition, like somethingism. In in the Netherlands, we say itsism. Believing in something without having the Uh, inclination to define it. Uh, More specifically, I think if you open up that box of people believing in something, I think you really find the idea again uh, that the spirituality, that the the metaphysical, that uh, meaning is ultimately uh, hidden in nature and particularly human nature. So I think that very much collides with what I uh, refer to as the core of New Age thinking.
1: Great, and I love I love that word somethingism, which I've never heard before. So that, that's great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so look, um, conspiracy theories. So obviously, it remains a hot topic because of COVID, mm-hmm. yeah. and I've got a question later on about that specifically. But um, rather than just ask for a definition, how about this: what what makes a conspiracy theory a conspiracy theory and not just a suspicion ah. about hidden activity taking place?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is that is immediately obviously a very very difficult question because it's really difficult uh, to delineate the distinction between indeed being uh, being highly skeptical about everything and uh, being paranoid <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a pathological sense uh, or making a distinction between Uh, On the one hand, for instance, neo-Marxist critical ideas about what modern capitalism, evil modern capitalism is actually doing with individuals and society, Mm. uh, which is a legitimate academic tradition. And on the other hand, conspiracy theories creating ideas about a malicious group of people or structure. Uh, threatening society and individuals. So that said, it's difficult to demarcate. One key difference, I think, is that conspiracy theories are always about uh, a small, elitist, invisible group that has particular intentions, conscious intentions to uh, ultimately damage society And particular individual. And another way of of defining, and I like this way of defining conspiracy theories actually, is uh, saying that whereas, again, there's so much diversity in the field, varying from ideas about the Illuminati, shape-shifting aliens, uh, a cabal or whatever, every conspiracy theory starts with three questions. And that is, uh, first of all, who is really in power? right who has the power uh, and the answer is always it's not the people we think that are in power secondly where is this power situated in our society which is a difficult question for conspiracy theories theorists even right because it can be anywhere. It can be in all kinds of institutions. It can be in pharmaceutics. It can be in the media in the industry. It can be politicians. It can be a coalition between these. It can be Russia. It can be China. It can be situated everywhere. So who's in power? Where is power situated? And thirdly, what are the implications? You know, the, the malicious uh, intentions and the problematic implications of these groups in power? These are ultimately the three questions that every conspiracy theory addresses. So this is another way of defining it, I would say. It Mm. is a more sociological uh, 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 definition as well.
1: And that's pretty helpful, actually. And those those are good questions for people to to think about more broadly, aren't they? Because they don't just relate to the topic of conspiracy theory, but they become a means for engaging critically.
0: Exactly. And that is why, personally, I think This is a a good working definition. Hmm. Perhaps now I'm getting too much into the sociological mode. But the point here is that these are the type of questions that we all ask about society, right? It is not the type of questions that only conspiracy theorists ask. Uh, Everybody uh, asks these type of questions. Who's in power Uh, Where is power situated and what are the implications? And this is a nagging question that we increasingly ask because society has become overly complex and power, in essence, has become totally opaque also to, let's say, highly educated, well-thinking, intellectual people, reading, you know, all kinds of stuff. It has become a very difficult issue to determine who is in power, uh, where it's located and what the implications are. So this is at the same time, one of the sociological uh, reasons why conspiracy thinking and why conspiracy theories are flowering all along, right? Because mm. this has become one of the key questions that we all ask.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Um, and as you were talking then I mean you were describing complexity and and the opacity of the situation and it if we come to the next question part of the answer might be that conspiracy theories and the new age end up becoming coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. right and that relates to the point we started with today which is meaning making Mm -hmm. how generally do conspiracy theories and new age spirituality come together and resonate with each other
0: well, that's a, that's a good question. And I think there's quite a lot of discussion about that. And there's also a lot of conceptualization going on. And I think the key concept that people nowadays in academia use to to describe this fusion of New Age spirituality and conspiracy theories is the, the concept of conspirituality. Uh, Ward and Voas in an article, I think in 2011, referred to this as the concept to describe this fusion that we see all along. I think, uh, regarding your question, I I mean, how are they related? That it's more important to see that on an empirical level, uh, we see uh, that a lot of people investing in conspiracy theories nowadays, conspiracy theories about the government, conspiracy theories about the medical industry, conspiracy theories about vaccination and corona or covid they are uh, coming from a spiritual new agey uh, milieu in many cases. Uh, So ultimately, the the question is, why is that the case? Why is there this connection? And I think that uh, what and don't really address that question. And I think it actually aligns with what I said earlier or how I defined spirituality. If indeed, uh, as spiritual people generally do, if the self, and human nature, and nature in general, has become sacred, society becomes a, an enemy. It becomes ultimately a demon or a, a something that is profane and powerful and something that we should reject. So what you see in a period during COVID and corona is that actually people being spiritual felt really assaulted by politicians, you know, uh, developing new policy and really intervene in many ways with the privacy of individual people. Vaccinations, which is the best example, of course, that are actually uh, literally invading not only your privacy as an individual, but also very much the sacredness of the body. Right. And these vaccinations in turn, uh, I mean, if you look at it from a more, say, semiotic uh, perspective, they have the connotation of external authorities. They embody and symbolize, basically, uh, politicians actually invading our physical and bodily uh, existence. So these examples, I think, very much demonstrate that people who have a feeling for the spiritual, who think the self uh, and particularly the emotions and the bodies are ultimately part of a sacred order, Right. If you really believe this, then these developments of authorities, policies and, you know, uh, vaccinations are actually ultimately threatening your spiritual existence. So that then implies that uh, that people being spiritual, interested in these kind of things are inclined to to turn more to the the, say the demonization of society uh, aspect of their worldviews, and develop all kinds of conspiracy theories.
1: Mm. Well, that was really interesting. And it it seems obvious now you've said it, but I'd never really thought about it on those terms, you know, this idea of invasion. And of course, Mm -hmm. the the boundaries of your experience of self, Mm -hmm. for many people are sort of, in those worlds, are both energetic and physical. So Uh you're right, The, the symbolic power of a vaccine becomes something quite incredible and potent.
0: Yeah. As an example, I think it also makes things very concrete. I mean, you could Mm, actually, you know, write a whole book on indeed the, the symbol of vaccinations in that sense. Yeah. Vaccinations are a, a good a symbol, not only of authorities and policies that these authorities develop that invade our private lives, but they're also very much uh, considered as being chemical, right, as being artificial. If they look at the sub- substances that are inserted in their bodies, the the idea is that it's not natural, right, which is mm. really the opposition of the natural worldview that these people Embrace and it's interesting because I had uh, some discussions with people working in the medical field at KU Leuven, also developing these kind of vaccinations, and they were really uh, thinking about these things, like how can we frame our uh, vaccinations as being natural? Because their argument was that actually our vaccinations are not chemical; it's not artificial; it's actually activating the self-healing power of your bodies, right? So Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. these are the kind of issues that um, people developing vaccinations and political authorities are struggling with. Not only, you know, how can we deal with these conspiracy theorists, these anti-vaxxers, but also what kind of frames should we use in communication to actually convince them uh, that these things are not unnatural, not totally chemical, but actually something, uh, some things that activate, you know, the the, the human uh, uh, bodily resistance in that sense.
1: That's, I think, a very interesting bit of thinking, because it goes against the the kind of division that's emerged, I think, globally between rationality and irrationality. And of course, we, we know enough now to be aware of the fact that just presenting rational arguments does not convince or change no. the mind of people who are let uh, say, absorbed or lost inside forms of magical thinking. So, yeah, that's probably, that's a good observation or a good realisation, but it's a little bit late at this
0: point, isn't it? <laughs> it, it is, it is. But I think it's a very very good what you're saying there. I mean, there is still this, you could say, the sort of reflex in politics uh, and among politicians and policymakers to think that the only thing that we have to do is provide better information. mm mm-hmm. I can understand the reflex and it helps for people already trusting the government. But people having distrust in general, a habitus of distrust and distrusting governments and the information that they'll be giving, it just doesn't help. It makes things worse, actually, right? So indeed, mm-hmm. the rational approach of you know providing good, scientifically solid information is not the way to go. Okay, so you
1: started off in part by saying that from the sociological perspective, there's a kind of, I would suggest, a suspension of outright belief in the capacity to experience or know reality directly, right, which is a big, big issue, which we don't have to get into. But I think there is a problem with that when it comes to things like, you know, conspiracy theories and a global pandemic, because obviously... There are social costs to the consequences of people holding these beliefs, mm. and we see them every day, especially mm. over here yeah. in Italy. I mean, it's it's quite infuriating or saddening, depending on the mood of the day. Yeah, But I think there is a big long-term project, which is that the complexity of the world we live in right now is also part and parcel of an epistemic crisis, yes. which is that we, if people are well-educated on these matters, they know that, yes, we're incapable of knowing the totality of reality fully, because we're not physically capable of doing that. But of course, there are degrees to which we are engaged with the real material world we live in, yeah. and then disengaged from it. And I think the the pandemic has kind of made that bracingly clear. Mm. And I think that socially, long-term, we not only need better forms of communication in the way that you've described from governments, but mm. we need a kind of a project of educating ourselves and adults more broadly, not just kids. Yeah on how to you know think better but also mm. engage with the complexities of the world we're living in yeah and as conspiracies in many ways are a kind of retreat from that complexity or a kind of denial of our material reality which is another way of thinking about why a person might refuse a vaccine mm. I think you know, long term there, there are big big questions that we have to come up against but I mean, there must be the temptation for you personally, Steph, to say, OK, well, look, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I take an ironic stance. I'm amused by <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah. excesses of some of these beliefs. But part of you must be thinking, Jesus, this one's pretty extreme. What do we do about this? What do we yeah, do yeah. socially about addressing this kind of problem? And it seems to me that simple answers like teach people critical thinking or, yeah. you yeah. know, have better science education at school. It's its not really enough. Mm -hmm. so I guess there's a question in there I mean the question would be have you been thinking about this at all and and have you reached anything that comes close to some kind of reasonable solution in your mind
0: yeah yeah well you're talking about the can of worms indeed uh, this is uh, a difficult question and if that's fine with you I have a couple of answers (laughs) I mean the first one is and that is really a stance that I always defend what I do indeed analyzing in depth based on interviews with people, you know, conspiracy theorists and new age, spiritual people, analyzing what they believe and why they believe what they believe is still something that is missing also in the moral political discourse. We need this type of research, not only for the knowledge of it, but also because it's a first step in solving the problem. And uh, I really have to emphasize that we just don't know what these people still, I mean, the, the, the good social scientific research is still lacking to find out what these people, who these people are, what they believe, et cetera, et cetera. So I, first of all, think we really have to take steps there because just one thing, what we'll find out if we do that instead of demonizing that and involving in the political debate, everybody's doing that, right? This topic is totally politicized. Everybody's talking about conspiracy theorists as irrational, pathological, dangerous, and they might as well be. But if we want to see that as a problem and if we want to solve it, we first really have to study who these people are. And if you do, you will also find out that underneath the, uh, indeed, the sort of uh, bizarre, sometimes eccentric, and perhaps dangerous ideas. Uh, There are actually people uh, that have all kinds of forms of distrust uh, that we should understand and recognize. Right. So I'm not saying here that we should, you know, pay attention to all individuals. But at the same time, we should also also the governments and, and in politics, people should look where this distrust comes from. I mean, in our sample, just to make it empirical, in our sample uh, of, say, Dutch conspiracy believers, like uh, one of my PhD students, uh, Jaron Arambam, wrote a wonderful book on conspiracy theories in the Netherlands. And we found out in the research that, you know, most of these conspiracy thinkers are actually, they had traumatic experiences, not on a personal level, but in an an encounter, for instance, with an authority. People, for instance, losing their child in hospital uh, where the doctors were not admitting their failures. Covering up one another, other people encountering problems with you know there are all kinds of these things that happen, uh, and then people start to generalize their uh, uh, their trauma basically, uh, etc. So et so this is also something we really have to look at. That is one. But secondly, taking a political stance and being moral in this sense, we only attain the the exactly the opposite of what we want. Right? If we Uh, say you are crazy if we say you're uh, uh, irrational we're drawing symbolic boundaries and we put these people indeed in a box of you know deviants and you know all sociological studies demonstrate that this is not the way to go this type of labeling only uh, makes them dig deeper in their divine positions right so Indeed, seeing who these people are, what the different motivations are, where they come from, and then based on that, um, develop a more precise and more target-oriented policy would be a better way, I think, uh, in that sense. That said, obviously, there are some branches in conspiracy thinking. That become overly problematic, right? I mean, it's particularly once people start to act upon their ideas, when people start not to vaccinate their children, if people pick up weapons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Still, and I want to emphasize this: these situations are rare, right? I mean, uh, extremism uh, in that sense is still quite rare. On a broader level, and you talked about this in terms of you know the epistemic problem underlying it which is you know what information should we trust and what information should we uh, debunk that is definitely a big underlying social issue uh, that is not easy to solve in that sense
1: mm. yeah another thought that came up uh, while you were speaking just this this core issue of trust and distrust mm-hmm. because obviously if the meta view today of the conversation is about this issue of meaning making, mm-hmm. then obviously where meaning lies is a profound relationship with trust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You also made me think of some of the ancillary functions of the religious institutions, mm-hmm. such as the church. Yeah. One of those elements which is often downplayed in discussions of atheism and belief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And certainly I think that's another feature of our contemporary world that we've lost the kind of context within which people can locate their concerns or their experience of, yeah. of that say mild trauma right yeah. within a kind of religious worldview that that assigns meaning automatically to what they're going through and yeah they, again these are big big questions and i don't want us to keep opening more, more cans of
0: of worms another thing is that these conspiracy theorists you know although they they develop ideas that might be really problematic uh, to mm-hmm. the perspective of many people and including my personal perspective, often mm-hmm. they do it collectively in many ways, right? So, yeah, the social psychologist would call this, you know, collective narcissism. Mm-hmm. That to a certain extent, if you have the idea that together with other people uh, who feel alienated, that you're uncovering a secret is very powerful in terms of creating, you know, a form of collective effervescence. Mm -hmm. It is very powerful in creating a group, which I I totally agree, which might be even more, you know, from a moral perspective, more problematic. Because these are then not individuals, but they Mm -hmm. are actually a group. And these groups, you know, obviously we have all these words like uh, filter bubbles and echo chambers, on the internet, these groups are actually loose, but at the same time quite powerful. So that's the thing. I mean, meaning-making also amongst conspiracy thinkers and people in the spiritual milieu is a collective thing. And I think conspiracy theories are very much part and parcel of that.
1: Good. That's a good, good thing to add on there. But uh, another thing that comes to mind is this idea of being disembodied alienated and isolated and and this relates in part to another area of your work which is uh, video games Mm. and online culture it seems pretty obvious to me but maybe i'm wrong and maybe you you have something to say to this that Mm. being disembodied being alienated and being isolated in your own kind of space of of the home Mm. most likely amplifies the extremes and the willingness to kind of sign up to pretty outlandish beliefs yeah. I mean, COVID obviously and lockdowns everywhere uh, seems to have amplified that as well. But yeah, I wonder to, to what degree the sort of disembodied nature and the, the hyper real tendencies of online life have amplified all of this, both in terms of uh, spirituality and conspiracy theories. Have you noticed anything in that regard?
0: It's very interesting. Actually, at this moment, I have a few students uh, who are writing master thesis on the topic of gaming uh, in times of Corona. And they are mm-hmm. actually finding exactly a sort of opposite position here, where, mm-hmm. uh, where people, um, and this is very much in line with what I said before this, where, where gamers are actually uh, using games as platforms, uh, where they are uh, finding their social capital, where they're bonding with friends. And they're bridging, actually, with strangers. Indeed, you know, admitted in a, you know, disembodied form. But it is a way to connect in a very intimate sense sometimes, right? In terms of disembodiment, yes, perhaps there is this tendency. And, you know, you can add that up, actually, uh, to the whole phenomenon of uh, COVID and taking a physical distance to one another, Right. Uh, which is obviously something that we have to do. Uh, but in terms of leisure and amusement, most of the stuff that we do is disembodied embodied stuff, right? Young people not being involved in sport, playing rugby or football or whatever, and, you know, love being online. Well, that's the tendency of disembodiment. But I want to refute the argument that it feeds the loneliness of people. Because I actually think, I mean, if you look at games and gaming, it is quite impossible to say that people are isolated, sitting in front of their screens in a lonely world. It's actually a world brimming with collective effervescence here. So that's a double answer, I think. Disembodiment, yes. And indeed, that's a trend. That goes beyond games and has to do with indeed virtualization, uh, simulacra and simulations that are ultimately everywhere and where indeed virtual reality uh, that is now on the threshold is pinnacle of that. That might lead to disembodiment, but at the same time, a very social environment that we're developing.
1: Okay, great. So um, I've got a couple more questions for you, Mm. um, and I'd like to return slightly Mm. to this sacralization of the self and something called the spiritual turn, which again are are features I've found in your research. So can you talk briefly about the the spiritual turn? Um, What is it, and why is it important?
0: Uh, The spiritual turn is basically the turn from a traditional Religious worldview, uh, generally in Northwestern Europe, a Christian worldview where people visit churches and go to chapels and read Bibles to a position that is not atheist, but spiritual, uh, where people find indeed spirituality and meaning in all kinds of traditions from the East and West that have been more, say, countercultural and esoteric, indeed, in in Western culture for a long, long time. And indeed, where a secularization of nature is one of the key features. The spiritual term, in effect, is, sociologically speaking, uh, is the fact that people in Western societies are increasingly coming into that position. So, for once, we did quantitative research, say, in, uh, I think, 14 countries in Europe, where it was indeed very clear that those countries uh, where people left traditional churches the most, spirituality was most significant there, right? So in in, in Portugal and Spain and the southern parts of Europe, There is less spirituality than, say, in the Netherlands, the UK and in Sweden, to give an idea. But in general, uh, you know, spiritualization is also easternization, as Colin Campbell uh, in his book, The Easternization of the West would argue. Uh, you'll find it in on all kinds of levels, uh, you know, on, an, on a cultural level where people are uh, investing not only anymore in uh, traditional religion, uh, but more spirituality, spiritual worldviews from the East, say Taoism, uh, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Uh, you see it basically on the level of health where people are no longer only focused on medicine uh, developed by science, modern science, Western science, chemical stuff, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera, but are increasingly interested in holistic health, right? Whether that is yoga, whether that is uh, tai chi, whether that is um, uh, all kinds of nature-oriented uh, ideas. But you can also find it to a certain extent in the economy, where, for instance, Zen meditation uh, has become. An important tool or technique uh, for managers, well, basically stand outside of the hectic life to reorganize their minds, and you say could say critically uh, to be better fit for you know neoliberal battle that is. So so that is the thing. I mean, I think that is well in a nutshell. It's perhaps quite a long story, but that is uh, the spiritual turn that. Empirically, you see it, uh, you know, people turn to a spiritual worldview when they leave Christian traditions and churches and on all kinds of levels in society, you see a penetration of a more Eastern way of thinking about things. In a very abstract sense, you could say, and that is the argument indeed of Colin Campbell, that we're encountering, uh, and it's it's a sweeping theory, I must add, that we're encountering a shift, a paradigm shift uh, from dualism to holism, uh, where the whole idea that body and mind, uh, man and God and man and nature are, you know, separated uh, is something that we are increasingly critiquing and complementing with all kinds of holistic, Eastern, es- esoteric worldviews in that sense. So that is perhaps an extra uh, an extra explanation there.
1: Yeah, and a, and a very interesting one. And it gets me thinking again, about the consequences on our our thinking about politics and the economy, if that becomes very much the case. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, we, you know, in most European countries and in North America, we're still dealing with a world of dualistic politics and dualism in many sort of other social Mm -hmm. contexts. So, interesting. I don't want to go down that road. I I want to stick with what you've just said a little bit. You reminded me as well of how neoliberalism has already been well, it's been considered to be on in its on its last mm-hmm. legs. Yeah, I don't know how yeah. true that is, but it, it may well be. And if the sweeping idea of holism is, is part of the the actual material reality we yeah. move towards, then maybe that will be the case. Mm. But one of the the legacies, of course, of neoliberalism is that it places the burden on the individual for yeah. almost everything. Yeah. And you reminded me in your presentation now of just how individuals are now burdened with the religious the religious right it's not just an individual shopping around for spiritual mm-hmm. techniques or doing a bit of zen on the side or mindfulness to cope with work mm-hmm. but it's also that the the locus of religious and spiritual meaning is now situated within the individual yeah and how that marries very well with this other concept of the sacralization of the self yeah been thinking throughout our conversation today it's as if our long-term capacity to maintain these kinds of individual retreats from the world or from our material context, whether it's through vaccines mm-hmm. or cynical views of political class being nothing mm-hmm. but corrupt, it seems to me that, in a sense, our, our world is challenging the capacity for people to hold on to such ideas because they produce such dysfunctional mm-hmm. social consequences. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a kind of big-picture view which I've just you know, um, come up with in response to what you've said. Do you contemplate to some degree? Do you give yourself the luxury of doing this, of contemplating where we might be going with all of this? Because there is a, a meeting point between the three, and, and that's you know obviously why we're speaking about all this. But do you have some kind of sense of, of where things are starting mm-hmm. to go or if there might be a change in direction?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that's a that's a large question, of course. I, I will stick a little bit to the secularization of the self in that sense. Okay. I, yeah. Uh, or or spirituality. I think I think there's a double side to that. On the one hand, you could see there there are trends within spirituality uh, that are a counter force against, say, the neoliberal view. That is a particularly the holistic variety of it. The, the ecological concern, uh, the idea that we are indeed asking too much of the earth and that we're exploiting the sources, and that modern capitalism is basically a problem in this, right? This is definitely something, uh, one of the wings, you could say, or one of the currents or one of the aspects of modern spirituality, and perhaps it's the most political aspect of it right so that there is a counter tendency there that you see it infuses many ideas of young people nowadays when they think about about the earth when they think about modern capitalism when they think about the disturbance of the uh, distinction between private life and working life all these kind of things are very much in, infused by these but this critique on capitalism and the critique that modern society, you know, has a dynamic of its own that we have to stop. On the other hand, the spiritual milieu is definitely a confirmation or even a celebration of neoliberal thinking in the sense that the sacralization of the self, as we see it in the New Age or in spiritualized, in spiritual milieu, uh, is really, well, making not only the individual sacred, but also making him or her responsible for everything there is in the world, right? So that is almost the definition of neoliberalism. The most critical views are really about, for instance, New Agers, uh, like Lewis Hay, I think, did in the 1990s, but also Shirley MacLaine, who are, for instance, saying, if you have cancer, that is not arbitrary. That is no coincidence. That is not just a physical illness. It's just a mirror of you, your own individual way of thinking. Well, these are basically, obviously, the, the problematic, definitely neoliberal ways of thinking, uh, spiritual ways of thinking about humans, right? So there are, in, in short, these two ways Uh, of thinking in the milieu. And I must say that if we're talking about the broader and bigger picture, we, I think, see among young people that there is a a big platform for the more political aspects of it. I mean, the the understanding uh, that neoliberalism and also, say, the sort of New agey variety of that is problematic and has its problems in and of itself, right? I think there is a, there's a big consciousness there. So the big question is, will this new generation stand up and actually work on this uh, in many ways? Um, I don't know if this is an, a good answer to your question. But, but, but for me, these are the, the, the two sides of, of New Age, uh, uh, the neoliberal side and the resistance against it.
1: Yeah, no, definitely interesting, and I like the fact that you folded the the neoliberal back into this sensation that many young people have, and, and which of of course is leading to a lot of stress and mm-hmm. you know psychological instability and difficulty. Exactly this idea, yeah, that they are you know the cause or the the responsible member of something which is obviously way beyond both them and what they could possibly do. But it it is interesting. Very interesting.
0: I think it's important also because I think particularly, you know, people working from sort of grand theory, there's always the tendency to sort of reduce a culture or history or even the future to one sort of narrative. And I think sure. I think at the moment, yeah. particularly, uh, it's quite difficult to say which of the narratives will is dominant, because we, we see all these kind of developments. We see that young people are, you know, sharing things, are thinking in terms of recycling commodities instead of buying new ones. They are investing in the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, they can do nothing else than cope with and cooperate with the uh, neoliberal system, where they always have to be on for work, Mm-mm. and also be, always be online in the media context, right? So it's it's definitely these two sides, and I think it's obviously too early to make a solid claim on on which of these of these sides will uh, will ultimately uh, uh, win, if we can say that at least.
1: So look, um, Steph, this is these are all big, interesting topics. Um, But in part, this podcast does consider the world of uh, contemporary Buddhism, Mm -hmm. although quite eccentrically, I might say. I saw that you've also been involved in a project called Secularization and Religious Play. And perhaps that will play out, let's say, in part of your response to this question. But uh, thinking about the themes you've been talking about today, to what degree do you see a relationship between our current moment um, within these themes and buddhism uh, do you see much beyond let's say the zen you mentioned or something like mindfulness and if so do you see any relationship between the kind of what what should be a contradiction but of course it's not between the sacralization of the self and something like mindfulness practice which comes from buddhism mm-hmm. um,
0: hmm. let's see how i'll start this this difficult issue one of the things uh that are interesting to me studying spirituality in general and I think well Buddhism or meditation uh, are also part of that is that there is a distinct uh, epistemological difference uh, that you'll find in these currents so uh, and I'm very much interested in this issue There's always, if we talk about religion and spirituality, people are always inclined to think in terms of you either believe something or you don't. This is the sort of typically modern dichotomy, uh, believing in religion or religious ideas or not believing, being an atheist. And I think whether you're talking about spirituality and new age or Buddhism and Zen meditation, epistemologically speaking, it's uh, more about experience, right? Right. Uh, about experiencing reality and getting away with all these thoughts desires longings etc cetera, etc cetera. which is to a certain extent i mean the whole idea of that's the way to step away from suffering is one of the key issues and i'm definitely not a specialist here uh, i guess of of buddhism that is what i like about it uh, is that it provides another uh, epistemological venue to experience enchantment and meaning in that sense, uh, so that is one of the reasons why I'm interested in Buddhism and and also in in Zen meditation and for instance mindfulness. So one of the uh, articles that we actually that we actually wrote quite recently a few years ago together with two colleagues uh, is very much about how practitioners, for instance, of mindfulness are always so strongly in making clear that what we're talking about here is not religion, right? It, it has nothing to do with religion. They want to purify it. They want to distinguish it from its religious connotations. And even very specifically, in many ways, they also want to distinguish it from uh, the concept of spirituality or new age right because new age is from this perspective also often seen as a dogma or a doctrine and something that people actually believe in. I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of effort uh, rhetorical effort uh, if you talk and interview people uh, interested in, in mindfulness to demonstrate that it's actually just a technique that is totally secular and hence compatible with all kinds of secular, profane activities in that sense. And the ultimate thing is experience, right? I mean, once as long as you say that things are about experience, it cannot be about belief. And if it's not about belief, it's not about religion. So this epistemological issue is very interesting here.
1: Yeah, there's also a political element to it, and I don't mean in terms of political parties, but a kind of navigation mm-hmm. of the complexities of, of engaging in a practice which has meaning, mm-hmm. of course, which they're trying to deny to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: right? that's that's interesting.
1: Yeah, if you know anything about the the history of mindfulness, you know it's uh, you know it is Buddhism. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and denying that for those reasons is understandable, but there's also a kind of another. I would almost call it another form of social dysfunction at play within that kind of mm. desire to separate something out from its its history, which, of course, is another characteristic of neoliberalism, right? Mm-hmm. It posits a world in which we are forever present, and therefore, as mm. you described nicely before, forever engaged, forever stimulated, mm-hmm. um, and there's never a kind of pull. So mindfulness, in that sense, is both a product of its time, but a kind of reaction against it, too, mm-hmm uh okay well look i've got uh, a final question and it's a slightly cheap question and you know I, <laughs> I apologize in advance but you know we did talk about irony and humor and oh, yeah. curiosity and i would add playfulness at the beginning look you've you've seen a hell of a lot of conspiracy theories and i must mm. confess i have a kind of perverse interest in them too and yeah. part of that reason is because i was i was submerged in them myself for a period as i mentioned oh, yeah. earlier okay, I, yeah, yeah i was a a new ager in the 90s. Uh-huh. I even met David Icke ah, really? of All Bloody People. Uh-huh. Yes, and there are a few stories there, but let's leave them aside. <laughs> What's remained for me is this kind of perverse curiosity about it. But mm. I just wonder, Steph, do you have do you have a favorite conspiracy theory or is there one in particular which <laughs> uh, stands out in your mind as always you know, uh, provoking a smile when you think about it?
0: I think I have two conspiracy theories that I'm always interested in. Well, let's let's start with David Icke. Obviously, I also wrote an article on together with Jaron Harambam, who's the first author because he he was actually he went to, I think to the Wembley sta- Stadium to visit David Icke and analyze oh, wow. that the meeting and analyze the rhetorics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I am actually always interested in the shapeshifting aliens. Uh, that govern our planet (laughs) argument Uh, but (laughs) at the same time and I know I mean it's it's for me it's I like it personally also for for several reasons first of all because it's such an intriguing case study where you see that uh, science fiction meets conspiracy theories or truth claims that people make I mean I think Barkun calls this a fact-fiction reversal, right? This is what conspiracy theorists do all the time. And David Icke is a very good example uh, of this, how he collides and brings together all kinds of material, but particularly very much a sci-fi story, and turns that into a theory that is indeed hilarious exotic and interesting in that sense. And I cannot avoid saying some sociological things about that. But I also like about it as an example is that we can laugh about it and we can be ironic about it. But at the same time, the fact that some people actually believe our world leaders, whether that is Hillary Clinton, uh, Queen Elizabeth or Barack Obama, are actually shape-shifting aliens... Is a very good illustration that people experience a sense of alienation towards the state, the government, and particularly our political leaders. It's not a metaphorical; it's it's giving a literal embodiment to a feeling uh, that you feel alienated, that you feel homelessness, that you don't have the feeling that our leaders, that you can trust them, that you know them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they might as well be aliens now. This is a literal interpretation of that. that That's what I like about this case study.
1: I remember that event taking place as well. And it was, uh, as, as you've just uh, suggested it, I mean, a lot of people went there. Mm. To what degree people actually buy into the whole narrative yeah. of someone like David Icke, again, is obviously another question. but
0: That's another question. Yeah. And. I have this a lot in interviews. At some points in the interview also, what you ask me is, can I take a critical stance? And again and again, I think I demonstrate that I'm just intrigued by these things, right? That, mm. that why people are actually buying into this is for me such an intriguing question still. And I think what you're saying there is a very, very interesting question that we don't know yet. Like, are actually people buying into the whole story? Or are there different people in the audience that like different parts of the stories? Sci-fi people might like the shape-shifting stuff, but there might also be people who don't like Jews, right? And being anti-Semitic, and they also find some of their uh, of their things. There might be neo-Marxists in the audiences, and they'll find some critique on multinationals there. So it's also the combination of different stories and different uh, and different arguments through which he basically, I think, builds an audience. And so this is intriguing to me, uh, to a certain extent. Uh,
1: A whole lot of meaning-making going on right there at Wembley.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's been a good conversation, Steph. Thank you for giving up your time and speaking to us about this milieu of fascinating topics. Final question, where can uh, listeners find out more about you and your work? And is there anything you're working on at the moment that you think might be interesting to our audience
0: i work at KU Leuven uh, and i'm a professor in media culture so you can find me on the on the webpage of the uh, of my department it's specifically institute for media studies so all my publications are listed there uh, and there are other you know platforms where you can find me so just google me and you'll find all the information what am i working on uh, most of the stuff i'm doing now so most of the research projects i have a lot of research projects so you know, I have three lines in my research. Uh, the first is a uh, game culture. Uh, the second is artificial intelligence uh, and, and the way people deal with artificial intelligences in everyday life. Uh, and the third one, which is at this moment in time, the most dominant line of research is uh, conspiracy theories on the internet. So I have a project on uh, YouTube clips on conspiracy theories, the way they're produced, the way they're consumed. Uh, I have a project on conspiracy documentaries on the internet, like *Plandemic*, for instance. Uh, I have a project that is more ethnographic on online uh, conspiracy communities on the internet to get more grip on whether and, and whether there's, these are really echo chambers and filter bubbles. Uh, And if there are implications to offline life. So, there are countless projects that I'm actually working on at the moment. So, uh, busy times.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, Steph, look, great. Um, It's been good talking to you. And thank you for coming on the Imperfect Buddha podcast.
0: Sure. Thanks a lot for the good questions and the nice conversation.
1: This is me, Matthew O'Connell and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast, and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality and religion. Much of what I have specialised in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-buddhism, and my own experimentations with both, most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice – yes, the scary quotes are out there – don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools – well, they're really neo-shamanic tools – and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the Romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, If you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com.